Section 6 of The Life and Adventures of Alexander Selkirk. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Life and Adventures of Alexander Selkirk by John Howell. Section 6. Appendix. Description of the Island of Juan Fernandez, the Residence of Alexander Selkirk. The Island of Juan Fernandez is situated in latitude 33 degrees 40 seconds south, and longitude 78 degrees 52 seconds west, about 110 leagues from the coast of Chile, and 440 to the north of Cape Horn. It is one of two islands situated about 30 leagues apart. The other as being at a greater distance from the land, is called Masafuera, a term which merely denotes its remoter locality in the ocean. At times, they have both been called by the name of Fernandez. The proper island of that name is of an irregular form, approaching to a triangle, and is about five leagues in length from northwest to southeast, and not more than two at its extreme breadth. The northeast side consists of lofty mountains and deep valleys, which are covered with trees and verdure. The middle of the island is so high as to be almost inaccessible. The western end presents a loose, dry, stony, barren soil. All the harbors are on the northeast side. In sailing round the island from the most easterly point in a northwesterly direction, after leaving the rocks, which stand out of the water in great numbers, you make East Bay. The land then stretches out to a point called the Spout. From thence the shore runs westerly into Cumberland Bay, known at sea by a table mountain directly over it. This is the best harbor in the island, open to half the compass, and ships may lie close up to the rocks. Farther on is West Bay, which, with East Bay, is the only landing-place where casks may be safely put on shore or taken on board. Near the north point is Sugarloaf Bay. These have all pleasant streams running into them through the valleys. On the northwest side a ridge of rock stretches out into the sea, forming a circular bay with a single stone in the middle, projecting out of the water. Thence, in a southwest direction, the coast runs almost in a straight line to Rocky Point, at the western extremity of the island, near which there is a cave. The southern and longest side extends from Rocky Point to Sugarloaf, or Monkey Key, forming a kind of crescented shallow bay. Monkey Key is a large conical rock close in shore, joining those at the eastern extremity of the island. About a mile south of Rocky Point lies Goat Island. Ringrose calls it Great Key. It is only about two miles long. The tides flow very irregularly, and do not rise much. Even spring tides rise only seven feet. Seen from a distance, the island resembles an immense mass of rugged mountains and rocks of the most forbidding aspect, but as you approach nearer, it assumes a more pleasing appearance, and the eye rests with delight upon the lofty eminences covered with wood, and here and there intersected by valleys. 
these are clothed in the most beautiful verdure watered by numerous streams which descend from rock to rock in cascades or glide along among the underwood in silent loveliness those says walter only who have endured a long series of thirst and who can readily recall the anxiety and agitation which the ideas alone of springs and brooks have at that time raised in their minds can judge of the emotion with which we eyed a large cascade of the most transparent water which poured itself from a rock near a hundred feet high into the sea at a small distance from the ship many of the mountains on the northeast side are inaccessible but they are in general covered with wood they run across the island from the northwest to the southern side on which last the trees are not so numerous being checked in their growth by the violence of the wind many of the mountains rise to a great height and are overspread with a dense fog especially in the morning and evening the island is subject to flaws or sudden gusts of wind which rush through the valleys into the bays with great violence but they seldom last above two or three minutes the air is in general mild and the sky serene during the summer months the heat is moderate in the beginning of june the winter sets in commonly with a northerly wind and continues until the end of july but it is not severe in the worst days there is only a little frost accompanied with hail but there are occasionally heavy rains the water is excellent the soil upon the hills and in the valleys is a deep rich mould and very fertile all sorts of european and american corn fruit and quadrupeds succeed extremely well and the sea which washes the shores abounds in fish the coast affords an abundance of seals and sea lions but there are no native quadrupeds the goats which in the time of selkirk's residence on the island were so numerous having been brought to it by the first discoverers the rats had got on shore from the ships and increased to a most amazing extent funel says the cats were left by the spaniards to destroy the goats but this not succeeding and the latter furnishing supplies to the pirates who touched there to catch them they had been almost exterminated between the time of selkirk's departure and lord anson's arrival there in the year seventeen forty one the spaniards had landed a great number of large dogs which increasing quickly soon destroyed all the goats in the accessible parts of the country walter describes in the following words a hunt which he himself witnessed going in our boat into the eastern bay we perceived some dogs running very eagerly upon the foot and being willing to discover what game they were after we lay upon our oars some time to view them and at last saw them take to a hill where looking a little farther we observed upon the ridge of it and herd of goats which seemed drawn up for their reception there was a very narrow path skirted on each side by precipices on which the master of the herd posted himself fronting the enemy the rest of the goats being all behind him where the ground was more open as this spot was inaccessible by any other path excepting where this champion had placed himself 
The dogs, though they ran uphill with great alacrity, yet, when they came within about twenty yards of him, they found they durst not encounter him, for he would infallibly have driven them down the precipice, but gave over the chase and quietly laid themselves down, panting at a great rate. These dogs, in their natural state, do not bark, but, upon keeping company with others, soon acquire that habit, at first, however, very awkwardly. The ornithology of the island is confined to the albatross, hawk, owl, pentado, a small hummingbird, and the pardella. This last burrows like a rabbit, rendering the ground unsafe to walk upon, remains torpid in the winter months, feeds on fish, and has a note which it utters in the evening, resembling, Be quiet. They were not found in Lord Anson's time, the dogs having destroyed them. There are, besides, two kinds of beautiful birds of which the names are not given, and a species of blackbird. There are spiders that make strong webs between the trees, but no venomous creature is found on the island. The fish are bonitos, breams, cavallis, cod of a large size, bacalaues, gropers, spurfish, burrugates, soles, turbot, conger eels, dogfish, sharks, stakes, pelic, silverfish, crawfish, snappers, old wives, maids, and chimney sweepers. Whales also are sometimes seen in the bay. The trees are palm, cabbage, malaguita, pimento, guinea pepper, black plums, cotton trees, Italian laurels, myrtles, and mountain ash. The cotton trees grow to the height of twenty yards, and planks of forty feet in length can be obtained from the myrtles. The vegetables are a long grass about the height of a man that covers all the fertile parts of the island, very like oats. Watercresses, wild sorrel, fern, clover, wild oats, sour docks, sow thistles, mallows, woodcresses, dandelion, nightshade. Also, pumpkins, Sicilian radishes, parsnips, turnips, parsley, purslane, scythes, and a herb that grows by the waterside, useful in fomentations resembling feverfew. Lord Anson sowed lettuces, carrots, plum, apricot, and peach stones. These he heard throve well. Such are the capabilities of this delightful island. It was discovered by a Spanish pilot in the year 1572, who gave it his own name. He was the first also that discovered the track from Peru to Chile by sailing westward. He is said to have returned and occupied it with a number of families for some time. But not being able to procure a patent, and the Chileans beginning to submit to the Spaniards, they all returned to the mainland, leaving the island stocked with goats. There was a fishery carried on by a few Indians so early as the year 1594, but when Schouten visited it in the year 1616, it appears to have been deserted. In the year 1624, when Jacques de Hermite arrived with the Nassau fleet on the 5th of April, 
he left three soldiers and three gunners who, being tired of the voyage, obtained leave to remain on the island. He sailed thence on the 13th of the same month, but how long the soldiers remained is not on record. It was a regular resort of the buccaneers in those seas. Dampier visited it in December, 1680. Ringrose says they sailed on the 12th of January, leaving one William, a mosquito Indian, who could not be found at their sudden departure. He remained three years, two months, and eleven days upon it. The pilot told him at this time of a ship which had been cast away on the island, and that only one man was saved, who lived upon it five years. In 1687, five of Davis's men, having lost all their money at play, resolved to continue there and join the first privateer that arrived, rather than return home as poor as they went away. Four Negroes remained with them. They were left well provided by their comrades. They remained two years and ten months, during which time they lived apart until they had cured themselves of the vile habit of swearing, which they at length overcame, and lived exemplary lives upon the island. The Spaniards, learning they were there, often molested them, carrying away their tame goats. They were taken off by Captain Strang on the 11th of September, 1690. Some French buccaneers remained there ten months. They succeeded in taming the goats to such a degree that they came of their own accord to be milked. They left the island in their little man-of-war and took a rich Spanish ship off the coast of Peru. The next inhabitants were Captain Stradling's men, who remained six months. To them succeeded Alexander Selkirk, who continued four years and four months, from the beginning of October, 1704, till the 1st of February, 1709. On the 7th of October, 1719, two of Captain Clipperton's men remained to take possession of Selkirk's habitation, but they were removed about two months afterwards. In May 1720, Shelvock lost his ship, the Speedwell, on the island. He built a small bark in which he left the coast where he was shipwrecked, but eleven of his crew and thirteen blacks and Indians remained on the island. These new colonists did not stay long, most probably surrendering themselves to the Spaniards, for two years afterwards, when Rogawain was there, he saw nothing of them. In the year 1741, Lord Anson's crew recovered their health after being so much enfeebled by the scurvy and exhausted by the storms which they had encountered that they scarcely had a sufficient number of hands to heave their anchor. In the year 1766, the Spaniards formed a settlement upon it and Captain Catteret, in 1767, found it fortified and a portion of the land cultivated. In the year 1792, Lieutenant John Moss of the Royal Navy visited it, and found a town consisting of about forty houses, and several others scattered over the island. Every house had a garden belonging to it, in which grew the vine and many other fruits luxuriantly. The dress of the women was of a singular description, and was said by the governor to be the same as that of the ladies of Chile and Peru. They wore a petticoat, 
reaching only a little below the knee, spread out to a great distance by a hoop at the lower part, leaving their legs entirely exposed, which, however, were covered with drawers. They wore their hair long, hanging down the back and plaited into forty and sometimes fifty braids. In every house he entered, the inmates presented him with Paraguay tea, mate. This they sucked through a tube and hand from one to another. He saw in all their dwellings great numbers of children and every appearance of prosperity. In the year 1814, the island was used as a state prison by the patriots of Chile. I shall close this description of Juan Fernandez with a few extracts from A Journal of a Residence in Chile and A Voyage from Chile to Brazil in the years 1822 to 1823 by Maria Graham, which contain the latest information concerning this island. 22nd January, 1823 This morning we descried the island Masafuera, about seven leagues off, right ahead through a fog, and shortly after bore up for Juan Fernandez, where we were to complete the water for the ship. I should have been sorry, indeed, to have left the Pacific without seeing the very island of Alexander Selkirk, the prototype of that most interesting of all heroes of romance, excepting Don Quixote, Robinson Crusoe. 24th. Yesterday and today, in sight of Juan Fernandez and working for it, but could not reach it till near sunset. It is the most picturesque I ever saw, being composed of high perpendicular rocks wooded nearly to the top with beautiful valleys, and the ruins of the little town in the largest of these heightened the effect. It was too late to go ashore when we anchored, but it was a bright moonlight, and we stayed long on deck to-night admiring the extraordinary beauty of the scene. 25th. Before daylight this morning, Lord Cochrane and most of the other gentlemen went ashore to climb to the high ridge behind the port and look over to the other side of the island where, it is reported, there are some plains and arable land. The island seems chiefly composed of heavy porous lava, the strata of which being crossed at right angles by a very compact black lava, dip on the eastern side of the island about 22 degrees, and on the west side 16 degrees, pointing to the center of the island as an apex. The valleys are exceedingly fertile, and watered by copious streams which occasionally form small marshes where the pink grows very luxuriantly, as well as watercress and other aquatic plants. The soil is generally of a reddish-brown. There are several small hills and banks of bright red clay. And I thought I found Puzzolano, and some fragments of coarse pumice-stone. The little valley where the town is, or rather was, is exceedingly beautiful. It is full of fruit-trees and flowers, and sweet herbs, now grown wild. Near the shore it is covered with radish and seaside oats. The colony of Juan Fernandez had been used as a place of confinement for state prisoners. I do not know in what precise year it was founded, but it could not have been long before the revolution in Chile, as I find over the door of the ruined church the following inscription. 
La casa de Dios es la puerta del cielo y se colocó. 24 de septiembre de 1811 A small fort was situated on the seashore of which there is now nothing visible but the ditches and part of one wall. Another of considerable size for the place is on a high and commanding spot. It contained barracks for soldiers which, as well as the greater part of the fort, are ruined. But the flagstaff, front wall, and a turret are standing, and at the foot of the flagstaff lies a very handsome brass gun, cast in Spain, A.D. 1614. A few houses and cottages are still in tolerable condition, though most of the doors, windows, and roofs have been taken away, or used as fuel by whalers and other ships touching here. After walking about a long time among the ruined cottages and gardens, I returned to the place where I left my companions, and found that the young men had pitched on a most charming spot for a dining-room. Under the shade of two enormous fig-trees, there was a little circular space bounded by a clear rivulet, which, in its rapid descent, bounds from stone to stone, and mixes its murmurs with those of the breeze and the distant ocean. Here I found Lord Cochrane and the rest seated round a tablecloth of broad fig-leaves, covered with such provision as the ship afforded, eked out with fruit of the island, hardly yet ripe. The decorations of our bower were the rich foliage and fruit of the overhanging trees, reflected in the broken silver of the water, that gurgled past. After dinner, I walked with Lord Cochrane to the valley called Lord Anson's Park. On our way we found numbers of European shrubs and herbs. Where once the garden smiled, and still where many a garden flower grows wild. And in the half-ruined hedges which denote the boundaries of former fields, we found apple, pear, and quince trees, with cherries almost ripe. The ascent is steep and rapid from the beach, even in the valleys, and the long grass was dry and slippery, so that it rendered the walk rather fatiguing, and we were glad to sit down under a large quince-tree on a carpet of balm bordered with roses, now neglected, and rest, and feast our eyes with the lovely view before us. Lord Anson has not exaggerated the beauty of the place, or the delights of the climate. We were rather early for its fruits. But even at this time, we have gathered delicious figs and cherries and pears that a few more days' sun would have perfected. The landing-place is also the watering-place. There a little jetty is thrown out, formed of the beach-pebbles, making a little harbour for the boats, which lie there close to the fresh water, which comes conducted by a pipe, so that, with a hose, the casks may be filled without landing, with the most delicious water. Along the beach some old guns are sunk to serve as moorings for vessels, which are all the safe the nearer in shore they lie. Violent gusts of wind often blow from the mountain for a few minutes. The height of the island is about three thousand feet. Twenty-sixth. I went ashore with Lord Cochrane's party early to-day, as I wished to make some sketches, and, if possible, to climb up some of the hills in search of plants. 
pot-herbs, particularly parsley, I found abundance of, and such beds of sweet mint spread along the water-courses that I think it must be native. So are the strawberry and the winter-cherry. I had reached a lonely spot where no trace of man could be seen, and whence I seemed to have no communication with any living thing. I had been some hours alone in this magnificent wilderness, and though at first I might begin with exultation to cry, I am monarch of all I survey, my right there is none to dispute. Yet I very soon felt that utter loneliness is as disagreeable as unnatural, and Cowper's exquisite lines again served me. O oh, solitude, where are thy charms? that sages have seen in thy face. Better dwell in the midst of alarms than reign in this horrible place. And I repeated over and over the whole of the poem till I saw two of my companions of the morning coming down the hill, when I hurried to meet them as if I had been really out of humanity's reach. The two were his lordship and Mr. Shepherd. They report that there is not more flat ground there than here, and that there is no perceptible difference in the vegetation. They are enraptured with the wild beauty of the scenery, and have brought me many splendid flowers and shrubs, the giant fuchsia, andromedas, and myrtles, but above all a lovely monopetalous flowering shrub, the leaves are thick-set with shiny green, the flower and berry of the richest purple. I never saw anything like it. While we were sorting these in our dining-room under the fig-trees, the rest of the party joined us, reporting traces of recent habitation, such as fresh embers and a horse evidently used for the saddle, so that, though we had not seen them, we concluded that there were probably some of the cowherds here, who, on government account, make charqui and cure hides for Valdivia and this we afterwards had confirmed. After dinner, we went to the western side of the town, and there admired the extraordinary regularity of the structure of the rocks, and some curious caverns like those of Monte Albano. In one of the largest of these, we found an enormous goat, dead, which of course reminded us of poor Robin Crusoe. The island abounds in these animals, but, though in my walk to-day I found the lairs of several, I saw nothing alive. And now, just as we were going to re-embark, a man made his appearance and told us that he and four others were stationed on the island, as we supposed, on account of the cattle, and that a cargo of charqui, tallow, etc., had recently sailed for Talcujana. We imagine this visit was occasioned by the appearance of our party on the other side this morning. Some tallow and hides that the master of the vessel had taken on board, Lord Cochrane now paid for, after which I left Juan Fernandez probably forever. 28th. Having completed our water, we sailed from Juan Fernandez, highly pleased with our visit cattle and wine and vegetables might be produced here to a great extent but any nation that takes possession of it as a harbour would have to import corn 
the island might maintain easily two thousand persons exchanging the surplus beef wines and brandy for bread and clothing and its wood and its water besides its other conveniences would render it valuable as a port in the pacific as it is our whalers resort thither continually the three bays called the east the west and the middle roads are all under the lee of the island so that the water is always smooth they are all well watered and very beautiful end of section six recording by james k white chula vista